Welcome to Sharp Talk, the regular podcast of eSharp magazine. Go to eSharp.eu for free access to all the podcasts to date. This is Paul Adamson. I'm in conversation with Sir Paul Tucker. Paul Tucker is the chair of the Systemic Risk Council and a fellow at the Harvard Kennedy School of Government and the author of a brand new book, Unelected Power, The Quest for Legitimacy in Central Banking and the Regulatory State. And I warn you in advance, Paul, this is going to be a kind of a layman's conversation because uh, I think the world you inhabit is replete with uh, jargon and acronyms, uh, slightly alien to the outside world. Uh, but certainly your book is extremely well-timed. It's 10 years after the financial crisis. I know ostensibly your book is not about the financial crisis per se, but nonetheless extremely timely. So what did you set out to achieve when you embarked on this pretty major exercise in your new book? Well, first of all, thank you for having me on this, on this podcast, um, Paul. And it's important to, to discuss things in, in, in lay terms. Um, the, the book isn't aimed at, at technocrats. Why, why did I write it? I wrote it for two reasons that came together. The, the first and more local one is that, the more personal one, is that after the financial crisis, the institution for which I then worked, the Bank of England, was given a lot more powers. And we, we resisted, successfully resisted, um, some powers that some influential people wanted us to, to have. And we resisted them because um, we thought that we ought not to become too powerful. We were worried about becoming too powerful. And for the same reason that the powers that we were given, we were insistent that they be constrained in various various ways. So that was the first thing. The second thing is the real motive of writing the book. It's really a contribution the, to the debate about populism versus technocracy, but conceived um, in 2014, not in 2016, when President Trump was elected and when the Brexit referendum happened. And it's because I, I became concerned that our societies, by which I mean the democracies, the major democracies of the Western world, were drifting into a state of affairs where more and more government was conducted by unelected people, people like me, unelected judges, unelected central bankers, unelected regulators, and that the people that we elect in parliaments, in, in Congress, were doing much less than in the world I'd been born into. And of course, technocrats have the benefit of expertise, but flaw, always flawed expertise, but they can't, just can't have the same kind of legitimacy. And I thought this was something that I wanted to, to explore more carefully. But taking the case of the Bank of England, where you were deputy governor for many, many years, this is not a kind of power grab by unelected technocrats, to use your phrase, nor was it something going back centuries. It was something given by the, the new new Labour government yeah. in 1997 by politicians of their volition. There wasn't like some kind of lobbying campaign by the Bank of England to become independent, was there? So in that sense, it was seen as a, a very smart move, this independence. No, the independence for the bank, the monetary independence, um, and in, being in control of an independent monetary policy granted by the Blair-Brown government in 1997, I thought was a good thing, and I still think was a was a was a good thing. Uh, when that was when that happened in 1997, the Bank of England's historic responsibilities for supervising banks was taken away, and and I thought that was a bad thing. Right. Um, and in fact, that was returned after the financial crisis, and I thought that was a good thing. <laughs> um, so it's not that I'm against independent central banks, and it's not that I was against the Bank of England having some more powers, but I wanted them to be carefully constrained. What's the objective? Um, how will we know whether they're doing a good job or not? Mm. Um, how will Parliament hold them to, 
to account and conduct oversight properly. So it's my, my concern, if you like, is that our societies have become casual about delegation. Now, we did our best at the Bank of England to ensure that the delegations to the Bank of England were not casual. Right. But I, I, in the UK, I think there are some other delegations that are problematic. There are some in the United States that are, and there are some on, in continental Europe that are. But these delegations you talk about, and at great length in your book, isn't there a kind of tension or almost an unsolvable um, problem between, on the one hand, one hand, having independence, autonomy, and on the other hand, accountability, physical accountability? The two yes. are in tension, surely. Yeah, they, they, they are. But where it comes to a, a head, I think, can be illustrated by market regulations, what Americans call securities regulation. So, um, handled by the European um, Markets Authority. Securities and Markets Authority, or the SEC in the United States, the Financial Conduct Authority in the UK. And they typically have three or four objectives. Protect investors, promote capital formation, promote efficient markets, each of which is vague, each of which ranks equally. And the unelected people decide the weights between them. Mm. And, this is, and what happens over time is then something goes wrong and people say, well, you haven't been given enough weight to investor protection. You've been giving too much weight to, mm. to efficient markets or to capital formation. And then it swings the other way. And people say, you've been given too much mm. weight to investor protection and not enough to the dynamism of the economy. And my basic position is, well, that's because the delegation was flawed. That the Parliament or Congress have ended up handing the big choices across uh, across to unelected people rather than providing them with a clear objective or if it's multiple objectives weights between those objectives so that they know what to prioritize and all of this is quite techy but it, it, it it's a peculiar thing that it, so many of the big choices are now made by unelected people because parliaments congress choose to delegate with such vagueness. But if your starting point is populism, as you said at the beginning of this chat, um, it suggests that maybe that, um, in, that politicians maybe should have the final word, but we know politicians in, in most countries in the West are, are not seen with great um, uh, enthusiasm at the moment or great approval. And up to a point, one can make the case, I know certain only up to a point, not, no, not beyond, that some of these unelected bodies, whether it's the judiciary or the central banking, uh, enjoy higher trust because, simply because they are not political. I think, that, I think all of that is, that is true. Um, and in, in a sense, it, it sets the limits for where I'm going in that they are trusted more, but trusted to do what? Right. They should be, the what should be set by politicians. And where populism comes in is where technocracy is making the really big decisions, the decisions about goals. When things don't turn out very well, as inevitably from time to time, government of any kind fails, then the people say, my goodness, we need more popular control over government. So you swing, in a sense, my concern is that when technocracy overshoots, the almost inevitable reaction is one of swinging to the other extreme of populism. And what lies in between is, I thought, what was meant to be our system of government, is elected legislatures making the big decisions 
um, standing for election on whether those decisions were good or bad, and then technocrats being handed the job of implementation rather than the job of what they're trying to achieve. In one of the reviews of your book I read, um, the reviewer uses the phrase, um, for some central bankers are heroic rescuers, for others outfoxed regulators. Which camp are you in? <laughs> <laughs> I, I think it's for others to, to, to say. I mean, on the business of being an outfoxed regulator, something that I believed when I was in office and I believe now is that it is foolhardy to rely on anybody to spot the next problem coming. You know, what people, technocrats refer to these as early warning systems. There's no early warning system that's going to work on every occasion. And then instead what you have to do is build resilient systems. I don't, I don't think that central bankers or regulators or politicians are going to abolish boom and bust. What really matters is when the bust comes, right. does the whole house fall down? I mean, in the 1930s, the ceiling, the floor, and the walls fell in. In, in 2007 to 2008, the ceiling and the walls fell in, but not the floor. Uh, so we improved over the 1930s, but it was still very, very um, bad. And, and so you needed a more resilient financial system, make them carry a lot more equity, and some of that's been done, perhaps not enough. Does that mean that if there were to be another crisis around the corner, heaven forbid, that this time, next time round, we are much better prepared than we were in the past? I think it would be inexcusable if we weren't. I think each generation of policymakers can learn from the mistakes of their predecessors. The big thing about the response to this crisis is that the central banks had learned from the mistakes of the Federal Reserve in the 1930s and learned from the mistakes of the Bank of England in the 1930s. That's why we didn't disappear down the vortex of the Great Depression of the 1930s. But the, the current generation can learn from the mistakes made in the 90s and the early zeros of just not requiring the banking system to be resilient enough. And the worry I would have now is this, there's been the core of the banking system has been made more resilient but it's still open to lots of other types of financial intermediary to, to reinvent themselves as de facto banks without being subject to the same constraints. And that, I fear, will come back to haunt us. But as you know, much better than I do, Paul, that the common criticism made of banking regulators is, uh, especially post-crisis 10 years ago, was that it, it got people out of the mess, but it helped the better off much more than it helped the less well off. I mean, is that, first of all, is that, is that a fair comment? And secondly, how can we make sure that that does not happen again? So I, disparity? I, these, these, these are broad brushstrokes, but I think it helped two groups and was tougher for a third group. I, I think a lot of people held on to jobs because unemployment didn't rise nearly as far as it did in the 1930s. And of course it rose horribly, but it came back down fairly quickly, certainly in America and the UK and Germany, a slower elsewhere in the Euro area, sadly. Um, so it helped them. It also helped the rich. The people it hurt or didn't treat so kindly were middling savers living off mm. um, the, the interest income on those savings. And this is where... Because more people are savers than they are, than they are stockholders, shareholders. Yeah, absolutely. Certainly in, in Europe, absolutely, that's right. And, and that was... I think this is a consequence of relying too much on monetary policy, relying too much on central banks. Had there been more fiscal stimulus from governments, 
um, and less monetary stimulus, um, the distributional effects would have been um, what would have been different, and we would have been under political control rather than an artifact of, 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 of decisions that central banks took. I don't think the central banks at all went into work and thought, how do we help the rich and the poor and hurt the middling? No. I don't think they made choices, no. but I, I think that those were the broad effects um, of their actions, our actions, as I then was. I think we should have been quicker to acknowledge this. The Bank of England started to do so in 2012, before I retired, I'm pleased to say. But I think more generally, I think central bankers have been a bit too defensive about, about this, whereas they should, they should be open about it and leave the people thinking, well, why were we so dependent on the central banks? Right. Why wasn't there? Why didn't the politicians do more with fiscal policy? If you take the euro area as a whole, it had the fiscal capacity. It's just not organized in a way to be able to deliver that, and Germany didn't want to. Well, in this last part of the chat, Paul, let's, let's talk about, about Europe, the European Union, the Eurozone. First of all, uh, the European Central Bank. I mean, you've seen its role evolve. In an ideal world, how would you, how would you advise the Central Bank to, to, to steer its course in, in, in the upcoming period? Well, I think there's little doubt that the European Central Bank, under the leadership of Mario Draghi and before that Jean-Claude Trichet, saved... Europe saved the European project, um, but I think this was a very uncomfortable thing for them to have to do, and I, I, they, they need to find a way of not telling politicians what they should do, which is very tempting, and, but actually it doesn't work. Politicians just get angry when they're told by unelected people what to, what to do, but I think they need to get across that they cannot be the solution to revived prosperity in Europe. That's, you know, all the big choices. Prosperity ultimately comes from the private sector um, working within a framework decided by governments, elected governments. And the ECB and central banks elsewhere need to, I think, need to be a bit more upfront and saying to the public, we, we can produce stability, but not more. And that's not, of course, the public won't be satisfied with that. And so they'll look to their politicians to do to do more. A final question on, on the Eurozone. There's supposed to be a brand new Franco-German axis back in action, um, but as we all know that Frau Merkel and Monsieur Macron don't quite agree on what steps to take now to quote-unquote reform the Eurozone. Um, do you see any, any sort of compromise area where, the, where, the, where Germany and France can come to some agreement about future reform of the Eurozone? Because obviously those two countries have to take a lead no matter what the rest of the EU might think. I'm not. I'm not close enough to the day-to-day -day details to know whether any such agreement is, is close in time. But it will have to happen. Um, it's, this isn't just a French point of view. Economists all around the world um, understand that the foundations of the Euro area are weak. Right. That, that having a, a monetary union without any kind of, of arrangements for dealing with what economists call asymmetric shocks, when one member state is in horrid, horrid difficulty and right. the other member states could, um, help, could help, out. Yeah. Is, is a recipe for, for disaster. And in, in the northern part of Europe, of course, there is a, a strong feeling that there should not be what a transfer union. Hmm. But up to a point, there is always a transfer union in a monetary union. Um, the North makes lots of loans to the South. If the South defaults, 
um, those will have been permanent transfers. And it, something I don't quite understand about German politics is, is in the system I'm more used to, the Westminster system, um, th that would get played out in Parliament every day. When people said, we can't have a transfer union, someone would say, but you've got one. <laughs> it's just a contingent one. Right. And, and I, I worry that too many politicians, I don't mean the most senior figures, of course, they understand, but I worry that too many politicians and diplomats um, non-economists think that because the 2012 crisis didn't was averted that somehow the euro area is fine right it's 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 a great endeavor it hasn't got firm foundations they should be fixed right we have to leave it there we'll leave Paul Tucker thank you very much for your time my thanks to you Paul